This is episode 27 of Functional First Podcast, where we speak with leading experts in the field of functional health. I'm Katie Yamamoto from Functional Media, and today I'm speaking with physiotherapist Anthony Lowe about CrossFit and the pelvic floor. Thank you for letting us interview you. No problem. We start by having you introduce yourself. Okay. My name is Anthony Lowe. I'm the physio detective. um, I'm from Sydney, Australia, and I'm a physiotherapist, and I've got a a master's degree in manual therapy as well, and I work uh, at the junction of women's health, musculoskeletal physiotherapy, and sports physiotherapy as well. Can you tell us about what got you interested in those areas? Yeah, it all started oh, 20 odd years ago in the hospital system. I was working on the postnatal ward and antenatal clinic, just covering one of the staff members. And I was in my first year of work and uh, I got called down. I got paged back in those days. We had pages, right? And I got paged to come down to the antenatal clinic. And they asked me to see this woman who was stuck on the bed who had low back pain and she wouldn't roll, she wouldn't get off the bed. And the antenatal clinic was backed up, the midwife was pressed. So I got ushered in. I had no idea what was going on, right? And she said she had low back pain. So I did what most respectable physios would do in my situation which is just a grade one rotation pivot, not doing anything really. Anyway, I thought, well, better find out how she's going. I asked her to sit up. She said she felt better. I asked her to stand up. She was good. She was out the door because she had to go pick her kids up. I was being pushed out the door by the midwife because they were backed up and I was left standing in the corridor thinking, I have no idea why I helped that woman. I had no idea what was wrong and I had no idea about anything. So I thought I had to find out more and thus began my antenatal, postnatal journey. I have a natural affinity for sports. So, you know, quite athletic and going to be athletic again very soon, as well as, you know, pain and musculoskeletal conditions really interest me. And so that's why I work at that junction. And I really have a passion for helping women not be treated like fragile creatures, but the awesome, uh, the awesome people that they are capable of so much more than they think and just helping them realize that potential. So you speak mostly about women within that, but how often are you treating males with issues going on with their pelvic floor and kind of sports related things as well? Yeah, so I I might look at it from a performance point of view with a male or I might look at it from a pain point of view, but I don't I actually don't see many male pelvic floor dysfunction patients. So I tend to work in women's health because that's my whole career has been involved with women, so antenatal postnatal women. And then taking that into exercise, taking that into musculoskeletal conditions for the males, it's almost like I have this blank spot in my head. I figure it's the same. I just, I just haven't done many of them. It's just how my practice has gone, you know? (laughs) 
being in this field where you are mostly you know, treating women with pelvic dysfunction, how do they perceive you as a male being in this career path? Yeah, I often describe it as having like a 1% view of like being a woman in a man's world. Like the world is set up for males, right? The patriarchy. So when I enter the matriarchy, that is female pelvic health, I feel just a tiny bit of what it must be like to be living in a world that's set up for somebody else. I, I think most women these days are okay with it. Certainly when their obstetrician gynecologists are referring to me, they go, okay, well, my doctor is referring to, to you. You must be okay. So there's that level of acceptance. There's the acceptance that has come from just being in the field for a long time. And yeah, but sometimes people who don't know what I do, you know, sometimes they're like, why are you asking me these questions? And that can be a bit awkward and trying to explain it is difficult sometimes. But um, just staying focused on the task is is usually okay and I'm just really careful to try and not tread into areas that they don't want to uh, be involved in. So if I was a woman coming in to see you, how would you explain what you do and what kind of physio this is? Sure. So the first thing that I say is that I don't do any internal examination. You don't need to undress or do anything like that. I explain that I'm just going to assess you, but because we're dealing with pelvic floor dysfunction, I have to ask you some questions to do with your pelvic floor. If there's anything that we talk about that makes you feel uncomfortable, I want you to make sure that you let me know and we don't have to do that and we can move on and we can do something else. You know, we don't do anything to make you feel uncomfortable. If you would like somebody to be present with you, that's totally okay. If you'd like the receptionist to come in because you don't have anybody with you, that's okay too. So just really trying to set up a safe space. I try not to get between them and the door. You know, just making sure that there's lots of safety for everybody involved. And then if they want to know the specifics of what I'm doing, well then I'm looking to see how your whole body works and how that relates to pelvic floor dysfunction and the presentation that you have for me. And then we can work together to find a solution to help you meet your goals and, and, and your needs and what has real meaning for you, not what I think I'm going to find as a physio and, and treat the thing that I think is the most important. And without doing an internal exam, how do you then assess what their pelvic floor is doing? Yes, I can only guess. I can only ever guess. And one of my key messages is that a women's health, uh, like a pelvic PT internal examination, is different to one given by your obstetrician gynecologist or your local doctor. And I work with pelvic PTs to get the information that I need. Otherwise, I'm just guessing. Now, quite often I'm left guessing because patients don't want to go get a pelvic exam. And so I just do my best and I let them know that ideally an internal exam will help. I'm not present for it. I, you know, the, the, the physio will liaise with me about that. And then I can use the information that they get to help give me more clarity in how I'm going to help you. Um, if they tell me that they're not going to get one or they don't want to get one, well, then that's fine. I'm just going to do the best that we can 
and just know that in the future it's an option if you want to change your mind we're going to work towards your goals as best we can and there's lots of things that I've developed an association or a correlation with which doesn't necessarily mean that's what's happening there but you know a bit of experience that we seem to be heading in the right direction and it gives me some things that I can send to the pelvic PT should they go get one so that we can figure out what's going on there. What are some of the biggest myths about pelvic floor dysfunction that you're hoping to dispel? How long do we have? <laughs> so myths, myths about pelvic floor dysfunction. Um, I think one of the most underrated areas of pelvic floor dysfunction is what is happening in your everyday life. That's super important to me. You know, what you do for the 23 hours that I'm not with you on that day probably contributes so much more to your pelvic health than the one hour of exercise that you might have been doing. Or, you know, you've been super, super careful with bending over to pick up the washing, but when you've got a kid that's squirming in your arms and you're trying to grab another toddler, like you're probably putting more pressure on and more strain on your pelvic floor and on your pelvic floor dysfunction than at other times, like during exercises while you're lying down on your back, for example. So I think um, one of the biggest myths and one of the key areas that I like to hit with a message is that restricting activity in the hopes of saving a vagina is not holistic women's health. So for me, women's health is so much more than just pelvic health. It's so much more than, oh, you have a prolapse. And, you know, becoming that diagnosis and, and having patients take that on as an identity is, is a real problem and, and making sure that they realize that they aren't defined by their diagnosis. And it's easy for people to understand that cerebrally. But when you're in it, the struggle that they go through just trying to tease out their identity away from a diagnosis is, is really tough. So that's something that's really important to me. Another myth that's out there, I think, is that you can't really harm people with words. Uh, just, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me. It's like, geez, they sure can hurt, though. You know, they can add so much load so much pressure, so much slavery to an idea or a belief. And so I think a lot of what's taught in pelvic health, you know, in the past has been too conservative. You know, don't lift up more than five kilos. Don't lift up more than two kilos sometimes. You know, you live on a farm, but I don't want you to lift up more than your kettle. Well, how am I supposed to live? How am I supposed to feed the animals? How am I supposed to help? men fences how am i supposed to actually contribute in my world and you know people use throwaway lines all the time things like oh you know don't do that because you'll make it worse even though we don't have the evidence that that is true or you know don't do crunches don't do abdominals another great one is your diastasis will mean that you're going to get pelvic floor dysfunction what's that well that's not true you know, we don't know what happens between the age of 30 and 50. Spitznagel did a retrospective study which showed that people presenting for gynecological surgery had pelvic floor dysfunction 
and a diastasis, sure. But what we're not getting in that sample are all the other people that have a diastasis and that don't need an, a pelvic floor dysfunction operated on. You know, Carrie Bow had a uh, her her group had a study um, not that long ago which looked at something like three hundred women, and they found that women with diastasis were four times, roughly four times less likely to have pelvic organ prolapse. So the conclusion is that it's not likely to contribute towards pelvic floor dysfunction by having a diastasis. And we also know that, you know, most women will get a diastasis depending on how you measure it and the the definition of what is a diastasis and what's important about a diastasis. So I think they're some of the really common myths. Um, Another common myth is that only old women get incontinence. That's simply not true. Uh, Lots and lots and lots of women in their 20s and 30s are getting it. And that takes me to the next myth. You can be a teenager or, you know, a single digit kid and have incontinence and pelvic floor dysfunction. You don't need to have had a baby to have stress urinary incontinence. You don't need to have had a baby to have pelvic organ prolapse. Um, You know, you don't need to have had children to have chronic pelvic pain. So all of these things are out there and lots and lots of women in their 20s and 30s are struggling with this stuff. And, you know, you look up incontinence on the internet and what you're seeing is pictures of old ladies and big, thick pads, you know, with underpants that are the most unsexiest thing you've ever seen. And, you know, you're just making them feel like a grandma and they're not even halfway to that age yet. So, um, yeah. There's lots. I think I've covered a few. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned crunches and I get a lot of women come in who are like, oh yeah, no, I can't do that. I was told never to do that. Why is that such a big thing? And what are your thoughts on crunches and sit-ups and those kind of movements? Yeah, it's, it's a big thing because I have my stories to tell myself why this happens, right? But I think what happens is that You get this idea that you generate pressure in your abdomen and that pressure has to go somewhere and so it goes down through the pelvic floor and for lots and lots of people who are deconditioned, crunches and sit-ups are actually hard. If you don't practice them, they're not easy to do. So then you use lots of effort to do it and then you use lots of effort and sometimes people will have symptoms you know they'll get heaviness from a pelvic organ prolapse they'll get incontinence and so somebody's come along and said well this is what happens with me therefore it happens with everyone I don't know how it started but basically it's out there like that but the research that we have shows that getting up off the chair that you're sitting on the chair that I'm sitting on is actually on average in certain populations more effortful on more pressure on the pelvic floor than doing a crunch or five or 10 crunches, whichever way the study was done. And, you know, we can look at the pressure traces There's different mathematics involved, but what we're looking at is that um, crunches have become demonized and it's just easy to demonize something. It's easy to say, don't do that because it's bad for you. 
Now, in the research, we also know that there's a wide range of pressures that are generated by people doing crunches. And so that says to me, well, maybe the way that you're doing it is more important than the exercise itself. Maybe how you're doing the exercise is more important than the exercise you choose. However, you have to engage your brain to do that. There's no simple recipe or rule that you can just say, nope, no crunches for everybody who has pelvic floor dysfunction or at risk of developing it, because that's just easy to remember. That's just one little thing to remember. Whereas if you actually have to clinically reason your way through it, it takes longer. It's, you know, it's going to be different for different people. You might end up saying, listen, for you and the way that you're doing it right now, crunches aren't the best thing in the world for you, but it's not forever. It's just for now. However, again, the easy rule is no, just don't do it forever. I, I think it's, it's unsupported by the research. We know, for example, from the research that on average, walking two miles an hour is more impact on your pelvic floor in terms of pressure than doing crunches. You go tell a woman to go for a walk for half an hour, you're putting more pressure on their pelvic floor than getting them to do crunches. That's why I think it's a ridiculous thing, in case you hadn't picked up that I think it's ridiculous. <laughs> so how do you teach these women how to control that pressure system if they are having difficulty with those types of movements? Yeah, absolutely. So my key message and the, the key message of the course that I teach is just to do something different. Ultimately, we can describe every physio modality, every physio uh, model, you know, framework of teaching, framework of managing and assessing, assessment and management as just find out what they do and make them do something different. And that's what I do. I see how they do a crunch. I see if there are any components that are contributing towards symptoms, not as a causation type thing, but just as, well, you seem to be doing this, let's change this and see if it decreases your symptoms. If it changes their symptoms, it might be associated with the problem, but not necessarily causing the problem. So really careful with the language. And then once I get that asymptomatic, say a crunch or whatever exercise it is, then we go back and teach them the old way that they were doing it, but making sure that they're asymptomatic now. So things that can change, spread the load concepts, tension to task, um, changing your breathing patterns, um, recognizing that exhale on exertion is only one option. It's not the be all and end all that people think it is. Also changing just the position that they're in, propping them up, changing the feet angles, changing the hip angles, just to make things easier, giving them a support for their arms. Um, there's many different ways to change an exercise so that they can be asymptomatic, head towards where they want to go, and then take them back to where they were symptomatic, but progressing them so that they don't have to have the fear of, I was doing it wrong, but increase their options so that they have more resilience. Now, I know you work with a lot of CrossFit athletes. Can you first just tell us how you got involved with that? Yeah, um, I was unfit. My friend who I did my master's with in Australia, he was going to CrossFit and he came and stayed at my house with his family. 
and he said, dude, you need to do CrossFit. Now, Dave, while we were at uni, this is 2011 this happened. While we were at uni in, in 2007, I want to say, he could not do spinal articulation. Like he couldn't demonstrate segmental control of flexion and extension in his lumbar spine, in particular, his thoracolumbar spine. And I said to him, all right, if this thing is so good, show me how your spinal, your spinal mobility and control has improved. And he got down on his hands and knees and he showed me. And I went, all right, that's good enough. Now, in all my years in CrossFit, I haven't really seen much in the way of improving that, but he improved with it. Um, however, from that, I just went to a local CrossFit. From that, I enjoyed it. It was like coming home for me. I love variety. I love the randomness of it. I love the fact that they push boundaries. I love that they try to break the rules. I love how they've um, challenged so much of the long-standing beliefs that are just based on wisdom passed down through the ages. And I love how they challenge all of that. So it really suits my biases to enjoy CrossFit. And I love the training. Um, it's been It's been fun. I've had some recent health problems, which meant that I didn't I haven't been able to do it properly for probably two or three years, but I'm just getting back into it now and um, and I miss it. You know, I miss it. So that's how I got involved there. Then I, you know, the coach that I had, he was talking about getting knee surgery. I said, show me what's going on. And he showed me and I said, well, the reason why you've got knee problems this is back in 2011 is because you're driving your knees out too far. You're creating too much tension. Your knees just don't like it. Why don't you just relax? And he relaxed. I saved him thousands of dollars because he didn't have to have a knee operation. And from there, other people heard about me. And then once the snowball starts, that's how it rolls. Now, CrossFit sometimes gets a bad reputation and people say that there's a lot of injuries in it and just the way that they... Kind of structure their workouts and make people very prone to injury. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, my personal opinion, which is the lowest form of evidence, is that that's just bullshit. Um, second of all, the evidence is that uh, the research evidence is that it's no worse than going to the gym on your own, doing bodybuilding, doing weightlifting, like Olympic weightlifting, doing gymnastics, and all of it is less than training for a contact sport or playing for a contact sport. So it's just another activity that you can do with an average injury rate. The thing is, is that CrossFitters love CrossFit. We participate way more hours than somebody who plays tennis or goes to the gym. You know what I mean? Like we, there are CrossFitters that'll go two times a day um, you know, four hours, like the competitive ones are doing four to eight hours of training per day. And they'll do that five days a week, you know. And then you've got to ask yourself, the rates of injury are usually per thousand hours participation. We're just getting to a thousand hours quicker. So it seems like it's more. But really, um, the research evidence seems to be that it's, it's average. And in fact, it was so bad 
for other fitness type people that a study was actually fabricated. It fabricated data to try and discredit CrossFit and increase that injury rate above average. And in the USA, that that court case has gone through and they, they found that the journal and the authors of the study were fraudulent in their claims and manipulating the data. Yeah, CrossFit is just like every other activity that you can do. That's number one. It has a bad rep because it seems irresponsible, but I like, I like challenging beliefs. I like that idea that you don't have to follow the rules. I like the fact that CrossFit is defined as constantly varied functional movements performed at relatively high intensity across broad time and modal domains. In other words, you're always changing it. It never really is the same thing over and over. It's functional movements. So you don't tend to sit there and do isolation bicep curls, but you can, and you can incorporate that as part of a CrossFit workout because, you know, you do buys for the guys, curls for the girls. So it's, it serves a function, therefore it's functional movement. You're doing it at relatively high intensity, and there's lots of good research that shows that high intensive interval training is good for you. The World Health Organization recommends 75 minutes of high intensity exercise per week. At least two of those sessions should be whole body strengthening, which breaks down to 15 minutes five days a week which is exactly what CrossFit does. In fact, you might even do more than that. So even if it's 30 minutes, five days a week, 150 minutes of exercise, CrossFit actually suits the World Health Organization recommendation for physical activity and their guidelines. So I don't know why it has a bad rap. I think people just don't like what they don't know. And they're willing to go to soccer and go to practice and wear that risk. And ignore the fact that your mate had a compound fracture of a tibia. Ignore the fact that, you know, your ankles have been sprained so many times that you can turn it 90 degrees and not sprain it anymore. But then rag on somebody for going to do something that they love, despite the evidence that we have that high-intensive exercise, strength training can get people off antidepressants. It increases bone mineral density. It improves balance. There's so many good things about exercise. And yet they demonize it because it's not what they prefer to do. Um, that, I don't know if you've noticed, but it gets me going. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any common injuries that you see with treating CrossFit athletes? Yeah, absolutely. One of the most common things is because it has a bad rap and because people don't want to get injured. And the reason why they don't want to get injured is because injuries mean you can't train. So they want to keep going and to training and doing their thing. They often have this belief that they have to wind everything up. You know, tension has to be to its maximum to protect your back. You know, switch on your core, uh, switch on your, your, your back and use those lats and set those shoulders and drive those knees out and screw your feet into the ground, use your glutes. And what people do is they have this idea that well, if a little bit of that is not good and more is better, then the harder I go, the better it is. And it's just a, as ridiculous as it sounds. Harder is not better. And that's the most common thing that I see. Way too much compression. So lots of joint aches and pains, stiffness, 
uh, just more over and above. The other thing that I see is that people don't like to rest. They don't like to take their rest days. They, they think, oh, I'm not doing anything. This can't be any good for me. And they just don't realize that a lot of the gains that you make are actually in the rest that you have and the recovery. Um, and then it's going to be your typical stuff. It's going to be, you know, shoulder strains, back strains, hip strains, knee soreness, calf strains. And it's just, just like every other sport, to be honest. I, in fact, I see more runners and participants in things like triathlons and um, riding, like bike riding, but in particular, I see more runners than I do CrossFit athletes. And CrossFit athletes will actually do something about their aches and pains because, again, they want to train. And so they're highly compliant. How important is modifying load as a treatment intervention? I think it's extremely important. And this isn't from me. Like, obviously, it's important for me. Um, but CrossFit itself says mechanics consistency, intensity, get the technique that you're looking for, get it done consistent, consistently, and then raise the intensity. Um, for me, deloading, the way I see it is, okay, you've gone down this road, you've hit a roadblock, you've, we've come to this impasse where you're plateauing, you've got symptoms that stop you from progressing, whatever it is, we've got to backtrack a little bit, move sideways, and then go forwards get around the obstacle. And so deloading and modifying the load is one way. Modifying their technique is another way. But also realizing that without load, without sufficient load, you're not going to get the stimulus that you need to generate the physiological results that you're looking for. So strength, um, you know, strengthening tissues, not just developing muscles, uh, improving bone mineral density. You know, if you keep avoiding doing strength training and impact exercise, you're not going to get your bone mineral density high enough. And we know that that takes place so much earlier than when we really need it, which is uh, in the later years. But the Lift More trial from Australia is showing that you, you can get great benefits from lifting relatively heavy even after the age of 65. So that's really encouraging. With that a lot of it is group workouts and there's a lot of community engagement within that. Do you find that athletes ever have a hard time with you telling them what they can and cannot do if they have an injury and they just want to push that because they want to do what everyone else is? 100%. CrossFit is more than just an exercise program. CrossFit is more than just doing a workout. CrossFit to me, is a biopsychosocial approach to dealing with life. I've often joked that CrossFit, in a post-Christendom world, has replaced the church, just like so many other clubs and so many other social organizations, where you go there and that is your family, that is your support. They are your the people that cheer you on, they're the people that will keep you from you know, making sure you don't get your heads too swollen. They're the people that work out and suffer with you. So not only do you get the physiological benefits of exercise, and let's face it, CrossFit is just organized exercise, you get the psychosocial benefits as well. So um, what's really important to me is the group aspect of it, keeping people with their family. 
Now, the worst thing a, a therapist can say is actually, you can't go to the gym. Because for someone who goes to the gym twice a week, saying you can't go to the gym for four or six weeks is like, yeah, you're going to miss out on 10 sessions. It's not that big a deal. But for a CrossFit athlete, saying you can't go to the gym and they go to the gym twice a day for, say, four days a week, you're looking at eight sessions over six weeks. You're looking at 48 sessions. We're not looking at 10 sessions. It's like saying you're not allowed to see your children for two months. It's just ridiculous. And so the first thing you've got to do is say, listen, I'm going to get you to keep going to the gym. I'm going to work with your coach to keep things going. So my end of the bargain is that I'm going to keep you with your family. Your end of the bargain is that you've got to be disciplined so that we can, we can work together towards what you want to do, which is get back to not having to think about all this stuff, right? And so people will listen and people won't listen But at the end of the day, if we're going to complain about a patriarchy, then we've got to stop being parentals saying, oh, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that. Let's just give you the information, let you make an informed decision, let them do the adulting and get on with it. Uh, Let them make the decision. And, you know, sometimes people need to make a mistake every now and then to realize that you're actually trying to do the best thing for them. But supporting people with the decisions that they make is far more important than any ideological position that I may or may not have as a physio. More, more important is the patient. It should be patient-centered treatment. So if that patient wants, and I've got one, I had a patient who decided to compete in a, in a competition. She knew the risks. She had bone stress reactions, and it's taken her six months to get back to normal. But she knew right up front, it's like, okay, you either you either start your rest now and you get back in about three months or you train for this competition and it could be six, nine, 12 months for you to get back to normal. She goes, I really want to compete with my team. Fine, I will support you all the way. And then she was out from doing, she was out doing very, very little for probably two or three months. That's how long it was under the guidance of a sports doctor. And then after that time, she was, you know, she was still involved with the community, but she was doing very little. Um, And then gradually started loading her up and she's basically back to normal now. But, you know, it's really tough on them to take them out of that environment. That's one of the key things that I would emphasize is don't take them out of their family. Yeah. So... Going back to a little bit of the pelvic floor stuff and kind of merging that with CrossFit and exercise, what cues do you use to teach pelvic floor contractions to an athlete versus someone who's not doing as high level of sports? Is there a difference between that? Yeah. Well, first of all, I always make my cues up. Cues are just words that get a reaction in the body that you're looking for. So I draw on their occupation, I draw on their past experiences, I draw on our common experiences that we have. Um, It might be a a workout that we've both done together. There's certain standard workouts that we can relate to, different cues that they've heard before, and just using whatever is in their history to get the reaction that I'm looking for. 
Uh, a classic example is that the transversus abdominis actually pulls around from the anterior portion of the abdominal wall towards the posterior portion. Now, if you cue somebody like that, I find that I don't get such a great result in seeing what I want to see. But if you actually get them to think about the ASIS is coming together, which is not what transversus does, they get a good contraction. It's weird. And then, of course, there's the how much do you really need transversus argument. But sometimes they just need something different. We know that doing isolated work like that can change brain patterns. But very few people I take down to that level. I try to keep it in the realms of like a hierarchy of cueing. And, and the best types of cues that I use are ones that are task-focused, goal-orientated cues like stand up, sit down, move move the weight here, move the weight there. And they're still the cues that I use for the pelvic floor. Otherwise, the standard one that I start with and I, and I see how they respond is with back front in. So back passage, front two passages with a gentle lift. And if we get that going, that seems to, that seems to help. Often what people do is they grip and rip right? So they squeeze way too hard at the back, way too hard at the front. They try to draw everything up and we've got that overcompression problem again. Whereas I see it as more lighting up the pathways and, and showing a different coordination pattern and then letting the brain choose which strategy it wants to use that's appropriate for the task. So how do you explain to someone how much they should be squeezing? Yeah, so usually I get the fingers and I, um, I get my fingers and put it inside their hand and I say, well, imagine that you're squeezing on my fingers because I don't do internals. Squeeze as hard as you think. And quite often it's, an, it's a white knuckled ride that I'm going down with these people. They're squeezing way too hard. And if they're particularly big like me, well, then I usually say it's probably less than you think. Um, cause I don't want broken fingers, right? So I start with that and then it's okay, halve it, halve it again. And then we just keep halving it until we get to a level that I feel is very gentle and they feel is hardly anything because they're used to ramping everything up. And so now we're into doing something different and then we can reintegrate it back into whatever they're doing. Always looking for an improvement in performance, symptoms, pain, you know, whatever it is, whatever metric we're looking at to improve. And then how do you get people to the point where they can use that in the functional movements that they want to do in their lifting and things like that? Yeah, we take it straight away. Straight away, we're going in. We're progressing within minutes, not weeks. So as soon as they get that contraction, and I feel for it, both in lying down and in upright and in the positions that they want to work in. So I'm feeling for things like bearing down. I'm feeling for just how much overactivity they're seeking to draw in and then getting them to move straight away. You know, we wait far too long with this idea that people need the time to learn this. If, if that's the case, well, then how come it only takes a spider one time to drop onto my face before anything that drops forward towards my face gets a reaction, right? If my brain can learn that that quick, why can't my brain learn 
how to use my pelvic floor in a manner that means that I don't get pain, I don't get symptoms. I think it can. I think if it doesn't, if there's a reason why it holds on to its preferred pattern of use or its preferred way of being used in a functional activity, well, then we're probably looking at a reason that we've missed in our assessment. I do consciously cue it, so it's conscious competence, and then straight away trying to move towards unconscious competence as soon as possible. Do you think that the pelvic floor should be discussed with anyone doing any kind of sport when they start just to see where they are starting from in terms of their ability to control it? Or do you find that that's just for people with some sort of dysfunction? No, 100% everybody needs to know about the pelvic floor. Number one, let's talk about women because that's the field that I work in. Uh, You know, women need to know up to half of women are participating with some form of pelvic floor dysfunction, like some leakage or something already. Up to 40% of women will experience pelvic organ prolapse in their lifetime. So let's just say half. Now, as a guy... Guys might be listening to this thinking, ah, yeah, but I don't have a vagina. Well, you know a vagina. You came from one, most likely. You know, so you're going to have a mother. You're going to have an auntie, a grandmother, a sister, a wife, a girlfriend, a daughter, a niece, who is likely to experience some form of pelvic floor dysfunction in their lifetime. you got to know about this stuff. And... Why aren't we talking about it? Well, you know, lots of people don't like talking about what goes on behind closed doors. I get that. But you know what? Maybe if we normalized talking about it, people would feel free. And you have no idea how many times I've seen it where you introduce the concept that, you know, this isn't normal. And then people start talking about it. And I've got coaches saying to me, Oh my God, I realized that lots of people went to the toilet, but now that's all they want to talk about. And it's because everybody thought that they were alone and they're in a gym full of people with the same problem. So we really got to, we really got to bridge that gap and at the very worst, at the very worst, you know, just so that people feel safe to talk about it, have female coaches do a female only class so that they can talk about these things. And the best way to do that is to get equipped. There's plenty of resources out there. You don't have to come do my stuff. There's plenty of good resources out there to help women with pelvic floor dysfunction and and exercise. And, you know, we physios, we're very, very good at getting patients from zero to 30%. You know, 30% is about what you need to live everyday life. I'm drawing that figure out of my ass, right? But we're not really good at taking them high level. And we really got to get them back to high level, 3D motion, change of direction, change of timing, change of speed, impact, plyometrics, high level, high intensity exercise. And we just don't take people there. You know, most physio gyms don't have lots of weight in the gym, particularly pelvic PT clinics, you know, like you might get 10, 20 pounds. I want to see barbells in there. I want to see... 50 pound dumbbells that that are being used. I want to see weights being used to help assess people. Um, that that's the dream. I know the reality, but um, I think it's it's that important.
how do you get that people back to this higher level? So returning people to their sport, to their activities, whatever it is, be it CrossFit or boot camp or walking the dog up the hill while you've got your baby in your stroller, it, the process is always the same. At what point do you reach that threshold and then where, where can we go with that? So, so my idea is imagine I, I see physios in a room and if we say that everything inside the walls of this room is considered safe, then what physios will do is herd everybody into the center of the room, even though the whole room is safe, and they'll herd them into the center of the room just so that I can be extra safe with you. <clears throat> And that does a disservice to the patient because really to push the boundaries of what people can do, you've got to go play at the edges. You've got to load. We know that anything under 70% of their, you know, their MVC is probably just neurological change, maybe some structural change. But like if you really want to help people get stronger, you're going to want to lift more than that. Um, so, so getting people back to their sport involves truly changing them, truly doing something different, truly strengthening them and playing at those edges, finding out at what point are you symptomatic and then bringing it back just a little bit. I saw a patient recently who had hurt her back doing deadlifts at CrossFit and she was under the care of a provider who was seeing her twice a week for five weeks. She'd only just picked up a basket of laundry without pain. She couldn't bend over without pain. She couldn't do a squat without any weight without pain. And then she came to see me. Oh, she then started with another therapist who was giving her exercises. Now, this woman can lift more than her own body weight. She can climb ropes. She can do handstand push-ups. She can pull up like a champion. Like, this woman is doing really, really well. And the exercises that the therapist had given her were baby exercises, things like two-legged hip bridging, for example, and switching on her core muscles, which is just completely irrelevant to her presentation. We, we know all the research about that stuff. So all I did was I asked her to move in towards the pain. And I got her to... Um, to sit in the pain and then just wait for it to go away. And we did this and we used a gradual exposure approach. We kept her confidence high. She always felt safe. Within that one session, within one hour of starting with me, she had hit a personal best in a squat clean, in a clean, and she'd been struggling at that weight for a long time. Returning them to sport is about seeing where are you right now? Let's deal with where we are at the edges instead of some preconceived restriction that we're imposing on people. Dealing with a patient that's right in front of you. What are your thoughts on breathing and lifting? Like breathing and lifting? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> I think it's really, really important to breathe. I think breathing is essential for life. If we don't breathe, you tend to pass out, you tend to pass away. Um, so breathing is really important from that aspect. 
I think what's more important to me is that you can demonstrate a variability in the different ways that you can breathe. I think being able to show me uh, apical breathing, AP, like forward, backward, chest excursion, lateral basal expansion, tummy breathing, tummy and chest breathing together, chest breathing and then tummy breathing, breathing into a certain spot on your back. Like all of it demonstrates to me variety. If you have a particular breathing pattern that is associated with symptoms, I'll often change it, not because you're doing something wrong, just that it's associated with symptoms and we're trying to associate a pattern without symptoms. So we'll go find something else. For example, you know, quite often somebody will breathe in on the way down and then they'll hold their breath a bit until they pass the sticking point and then they breathe out on the way up. Great, that's one pattern. And we're talking about lifting, but one of my favorite things, if I can just divert for a second, is with Pilates instructors, you know, they're taught to exhale on exertion. I love getting a Pilates instructor and saying, okay, now I want you to inhale on exertion. Now, some schools of thought have that, so that's not a weird thing for them, but so many of them are trained not to hold their breath or breathe in during the hard part of the work, that they don't know what to do with that. So it's important to breathe. The, the evidence in terms of intra-abdominal pressure on the pelvic floor and holding your breath is a bit mixed, but it seems like if you put physical pressure of your abdomen from flexing over while holding your breath or breathing, it can actually, it can actually change. There's no consistency. So this whole idea of holding your breath while you do an exercise is a bad thing, doesn't necessarily hold up. So again, we have to go to the individual in front of us. What is your preferred way of breathing? And do we need to fiddle with that to try and change your symptoms? It's not my first go-to, but sometimes it is. It's not my primary focus, but sometimes it is. It really depends on the person that I'm seeing. What I do know is that taking a very big breath and holding that seems to produce lesser results than taking a big breath in, breathing out a little bit, and then holding that. That does seem to be better. I think it's a length tension relationship thing, being able to generate and control the intrathoracic pressure and then intra-abdominal pressure. What do you think about the use of weight belts? Oh, yes, weightlifting belts. Mm -hmm. I honestly, I think that it needs to be considered based on your goals. What does a patient want to do? If you're competitive, if you're earning money, if you're going to have a ranking that lets you compete internationally, if you're going for the Olympic selections, that difference could be quite significant. It could actually make a difference to how you perform. Um, but otherwise, weightlifting belts are used to lift more weight. But most of the time they're used because your abdomen and your back aren't sufficiently developed to take the load that you want to push and your legs are usually not the problem. So, uh, you know, people who use weightlifting belts, quite often their legs are strong enough and their back isn't strong enough. So I consider it as developing your weakest player on your team instead of getting some substitutes to come in and take over like a designated hitter or 
you know, just getting that player onto the field for that play, I'd rather just develop the whole team um, and develop develop the deficiencies or the the less efficient members of your team, just bringing them up to speed with the rest of your body. And um, so, yeah, if you must use a weight belt, I'll teach you how to use a weight belt differently. But I prefer not to use them in everyday people, you know. It's, it's just not necessary. However, if they want to lift the very most that they can and they're going to use a weight belt, I'll teach them how to use it. How do you use it differently? What do you mean by that? Quite often people use it very tight. So they'll pull it very tight. They'll strap themselves in. They'll blow through the belt. So they'll push their abdomen through and then they'll squat because you're using that intra-abdominal pressure to provide the stability. Um, Quite often I'll get them to put it uh, so that they can still fit a hand through it and brace to the belt, not through the belt. So that's the first one. The second one is that they may wear it a little bit looser where they can fit two fingers sideways. And then as they go down, it's there for you in case you need it, in case you can't get out of the hole. It's a bit of a, it's like a backstop, I call it. It's just there just in case you need it. They're the preferred ways that I like to use it. I don't like the super tight method. It's, uh, Sure, it doesn't let your abdomen distend, but it sends the pressure up and down. So you'll see people with uh, reflux and you'll see people with pelvic floor dysfunction who who don't control that pressure well. Anything else you'd like to touch on? <laughs> <laughs> There's so much that I, that I want to touch on. You know, I, I would love more consideration about loaded exercise. I would love more consideration about impact exercise. I would like more respect paid towards the skills of strength and conditioning coaches and fitness professionals. And I would like strength and conditioning and fitness professionals to have therapists that they can rely on instead of this tug of war for the client, actually working together as a team I'd really love to just see the language of physiotherapy change. One of damage and injury focused biomechanical problems evolve towards, um, well, it's not forever, just for now. You know, you can crack on with this. You can still exercise with an injury. Pain is not equal to damage. The the modern pain science concepts are, are great. Um, seeing that play out practically in, uh, in, in the way that we do what we do and evolving our practice over time because we can't change overnight um, is, is a passion that I have and what I seek to achieve through, through the education programs that I run. Okay, thank you. You're welcome, thank you. Thank you for listening to Functional First Podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a rating on the iTunes store and stay tuned each month for a new episode.